In Mark chapter 14, as we continue to make our way uh, discovering Jesus through the gospel of Mark, we have been in the Passion Week for uh, quite some time. Again, chapter 11, we celebrated, uh, we, we looked at the verses that celebrate Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And today, uh, we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 14. Last week, we looked at Mary anointing the feet of Jesus uh, with the costly spikenard, Judas and the others rebuking her. Why this costly, why, why this waste of this costly ointment? We could have sold it and given to the poor. And Jesus uh, defends her worship, her, her um, in, all-encompassing uh, sacrificial worship uh, is to be memorialized everywhere the gospel is preached. And so we read that last week. Verse 10 picks up with, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him, betray Jesus. So we come to this uh, place with Judas. Um, his name, interestingly, uh, means he shall be praised. Now, in the Bible, we have our heroes in the Bible. I mean, we have the heroes of faith that we read about, Moses and Abraham, and of course, Jesus, the, the number one hero of the faith in the Bible. Uh, many others... Uh, that we read about. And there's also there, uh, the villains we have in the Bible, those that have tried to come against God, uh, those that have tried to come against his people. Uh, this week, you may not know this, in the Jewish calendar, this week is celebrated the Feast of Purim. Uh, if you've read the book of Esther, you've, you've seen the Feast of Purim. It's not one of the main feasts of Israel, but it's this in their calendar. It's this Wednesday and Thursday. And uh, that's a time when they celebrate the fact that the Jews were rescued from extermination uh, under the Persian Empire uh, by Mordecai and Esther. Remember Esther, you know, the one who was uh, risen up to be queen for just such a time as this. And we love that story. And uh, Haman had plotted to exterminate the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. And Mordecai and Esther kind of saved the day, and so they instituted the Feast of Purim. Haman, if you remember his name, was the guy that was behind the plot to, uh, to exterminate them. He was uncovered, and, and he was hanged on the gallows he had made for Mordecai to be hanged on. So the Purim Feast, when they celebrate it, they give gifts to each other, the Jews do. They give uh, food gifts to one another over the course of two days, and they retell the story of Purim. And when they tell the story, every time the name Haman is read in the story, the kids all in the group, all the kids go boo, boo. They all boo and hiss at Haman, which is kind of, I think, how we feel sometimes when we come to Judas. He is uh, notoriously uh, famous for his betrayal of Jesus, um, his life of hope and promise that began with his parents naming him, he shall be praised, ended with a denial or the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he committed suicide. Uh, greed was a big issue in his life. We see here, even in this passage, look at verse 11. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Judas had gone to the religious leaders and said, basically, look, I'm done with Jesus. He could have been mad because Jesus sort of rebuked him when he um, had complained about Mary giving this ointment uh, to Jesus. For whatever reason, Judas makes a decision to betray Jesus, and money is involved with it. He figures, well, if I'm on my way out, I'm going to go out and get as much as, I'm going to milk it for all I can get, and he tries to get uh, some money from them. They agree on 30 pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, this is the common price of a slave. And so for 30, piece, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas sells out 
from having walked with Jesus. More on that in a second. Again, I said his name means he shall be praised. Parents don't typically name their kids Judas today. Uh, If you have a son, you're not likely going to consider Judas as a name because his name has been tarnished by this Judas of the Bible. Um, Interestingly, also, uh, in out west, on the west coast, uh, they have the Bureau of Land Management that gathers up all the wild horses and wild donkeys out there. They gather them up and then disperse them out to be trained or whatever they're going to do with them. And the way they catch the wild horse herds out there is they train up a specific horse, they drop him off in a certain place, and train him over the course of months to run back into a series of gates that they have set up into a corral that they then close the gate. And so this horse is trained to run from point A to point B over the course of time, and then they drop him off in the herd in that point A spot, and he begins to go back to point B where the corral is, and all the horses follow him. And they follow him right into there to being caught and corralled from freedom uh, into, into being caught. And so they call that horse, you know, can you guess what they call him? They call him the Judas horse. So that's what Judas's name has become uh, connected with. If you do a favor to, uh, for me, just go back to Mark chapter 3 for a second. Just a few pages back to Mark chapter 3. Because you'd figure, you know, if, if Jesus is selecting intimate disciples... And he's going to pray all night to do that. You'd figure he could choose better than Judas, right? But Judas, Judas was chosen for a purpose. Judas had a purpose in the grand scheme of things. But I find it interesting what we read in chapter 3. We read it a long time ago, so we'll refresh our memories. Verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted. Of those was Judas. Judas was one that Jesus wanted as a follower of his. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him. That was the first thing. And that he might send them out to preach. That was the second thing. And that they would have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. So those were the three things that sort of were in, in given to them by Jesus. They would be with him. That's the most important thing. They would preach and they would have power to, to heal sickness and cast out demons. And so then the list follows. Simon normally heads up the list, um, who was given the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So there's a little bit of commentary on those guys there in this list. But then after that, it's pretty much everybody's just named. Uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite. And then last in the list, normally, is Judas. And it says, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, what I found interesting was the word also, because also indicates that, you know, if you have your resume, you know, I've done this, 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 and also this. And by the way, betrayal is not something you typically want on your resume, but that's what's on Judas's resume. What's the also about? Well, Judas was one of them that was with Jesus. Judas was one of them that was sent out to preach, and we assume he did. Judas was one of them who had been given power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. And so when Jesus sends out the 12 and he sends them in, in two by two out to go and do ministry, Judas has a partner, and they're doing ministry together. And, Judas, and no one suspects anything. He's so good at hiding who he really is that no one suspects anything. And so this is the guy, three times Mark mentions him in, in the Gospel of Mark. Twice, it's put after his name, one of the 12. And Judas one of the 12. He was one of the 12. 
the, the betrayal of Jesus didn't come from outside somewhere. And, and those are actually, I think in our lives, those are the betrayals that are easier to handle. It's those intimate, close friends when they betray us. Someone close to us, a spouse or a child or a relative. Those are the betrayals that are even harder. Back with me to, uh, to chapter 14. So Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he goes to the chief priests to betray him to them. They come up with a deal, 30 pieces of silver. And when they heard of it, they were glad. The, Jews were, the Jewish leaders were looking for an opportunity to catch Jesus. They had been plotting this. Uh, they were afraid of the crowds. So Judas gives them the opportunity they're looking for that he's going to help them find Jesus at a time when the crowds aren't around, when they can take him quietly, take him secretly, and dispose of him, get rid of him. And so um, he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus. Uh, By the way, Mark doesn't tell us this, but some of the other gospel writers do. I think Luke and John both mention it, that uh, Judas had help. Judas wasn't alone in this. Can you guess who might have been helping Judas in this plot to betray Jesus? It was Satan. John tells us it was when Satan had entered Judas's heart. And Luke tells us the same thing, that Satan had entered Judas's heart. So was Judas just an unwilling pawn? Was Judas just a, uh, a puppet for Satan to use? We'll talk more about that in a few verses. But the interesting thing that I think uh, applies maybe to us is that, uh, you know, most of us are not going to pray to Satan. I don't think you would do that. Um, but Satan is alive and well. And in this world, we, have, uh, we, we are not, as many think, free thinkers. You might think, well, I'm, I'm a free thinker. I just, you know, I, I'm just a, a free thinking kind of man. No, you're not. Everybody has influences coming into their lives. Thoughts are, are entering, exiting your world, your, your domain, and you have to decide what thoughts to believe, not to believe. The, the um, advertising companies, they take advantage of the fact that you're covetous. In, in your heart there, you like to have things that other people have. And so they play on that. And so you think it was your decision. Boy, if you could read some of the things that advertising people know about you, your, what they find out from you on Facebook. Uh, I remember reading a story a while back about uh, Target. Maybe some of you like to, target, uh, to shop at Target. Well, they are targeting. The Target is you, if you didn't know that. Now, I'm not downing Target in general. I'm just saying the Target is you. There was, uh, they, sele- they keep track. If you have like a rewards card, They keep track of everything you buy. They know what you're going to buy before you buy it. So much so that uh, even when they send out the flyers and the ads, those are tailor-made to you. They just hide it behind, like if you're, you know, if you're a guy and it's the springtime and you start getting the Target ads and they, they send you something that's got grills for sale. They'll also put in some other things like toothpaste and things because they don't want you to be suspicious that they're marketing to you because they know you're going to buy these things because they know guys buy this stuff in the springtime. This one family, this guy's uh, daughter, had started getting uh, Target advertisements um, for baby products. And the father was livid. And he goes down to Target and he says, what are you doing? You know, are you trying to, uh, to get my daughter to, you know, to think these things? And, and, and what he didn't know is he got home he talked to his daughter. It turns out his 16-year-old daughter, he didn't know it. Target did. She was already pregnant. And Target knew it before her dad did because of trends in her shopping and things like that. So when you say you're a free thinker, when you think that you're coming up with your own thoughts, you realize that the Bible says the whole world, John says this, 
the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, Satan. The world system. And, and people, see, the word of God protects me. Protects me. Because I have something to combat. There's a battle going on in, for the mind and the heart in the world. And the, the great bigger, I mean, the bigger battle since Genesis since the promise of the, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, Satan has been trying to do in the Jewish race to avoid Jesus coming into, in, into to being ever since Genesis. And so all through history, you see this plot against the Jews. So there's this greater spiritual battle the Bible tells you and I about. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not my spouse or my boss or this or that person. It, it, there's... There's a battle between Satan and God. And for, it's for your life. Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the Bible makes it pretty easy. Again, I think th- this is what I love about the Word of God is um, it breaks it down simply. The Bible says there's two ways. There's two doors. One leads to death. The other leads to life. You get to choose. You get to choose which door. And I like that because I'm a simple guy. Like, I don't, if it's a lot of choices, like I go to the grocery store to get coffee. Like, have you seen the coffee aisle? I mean, do you want this brand or that brand or the decaf or caffeinated or half-calf or whatever? I mean, I, I'm, how, how did guys shop before there were cell phones? I mean, I make my way down. I got a list, you know, and what's on the list? I'm going down the aisle. Okay, get, you know, get coffee or, or get, get salad dressing. Well, there's like there's a gazillion kinds. What kind do you want? You know, you got to have a cell phone. Okay, I'm calling my wife like every two minutes from the grocery store. I say, just stick by the phone because I'm going to need your help in a few minutes. And okay, which of these did you want? Which size do you want? I can't do lots of choices. Like, I like it because it's simple. The, the spiritual things in life, God has made very simple. Look, folks, th- there's the way that leads to life and there's the way that leads to death. Now, I can handle that. My little pea-sized brain can comprehend two ways, right? Are you with me? There's the wide door that leads to destruction that many travel down, and Satan is the pied piper of that door because he wants to destroy your life. And as a pastor, it's so hard to watch people walking down that road. People that say that they're self-thinking, that they're free-thinking, you are a slave either to righteousness or to unrighteousness. If you are not for Jesus, then by default, you are against him. There's no middle ground in the spiritual battle. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutrality. You're either for or you're against. And so, um, you know, so I think we can look at, how, at Judas and say, whoa, Satan entered his heart. I think Satan has influence over a lot of uh, things that you might not expect him to be behind. So Satan is helping out Judas, and, I, and, and he longs to help, help you out as well. Um, unless you are a follower of Jesus. And then I've got that battle where I have something to rely on in my mind. I have the word of God I can pick up and read truth and and read light and read life and understand those things and have those things in my life that help me combat uh, darkness and lies. So now on the first day of uh, unleavened bread, this is verse 12, when they, they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So we know it's the, it's the Passover time of year. The Passover goes back to the Old Testament. The Passover is a celebration in the Jewish calendar that's rooted in history. 
It's not rooted in mythology like so many world religions, like so many things that are celebrated rooted in mythology. The Passover, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate, the resurrection that we celebrate, these things are rooted in history. History, as much as George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. The Passover meal was rooted in the history of the Israelites. They were, for 400 years, slaves in the land of Egypt. And there were 10 plagues that God used to set them free. Nine of them uh, were, uh, were unique to, the, to this one special one. Nine of them, uh, some of them affected everybody, the Jews and, the, Gen- and, the, um, and the, the Egyptians. Some of them affected the Egyptians only, but not the Jews. But this one plague, the death of the firstborn, was the only time when the Jews actually had to do something. God said, you have to get a lamb on the 10th day of the month, and you slaughter that lamb on the 14th day of the month, and you put the blood over the doorposts on the lintels. And when the death angel comes through, he will pass over your house. So every house that was not covered by the blood of the lamb in Egypt had someone, the firstborn, died in that household. But if they said, blood, lamb, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not doing it. I don't believe it. Guess what happened to them? They died. They had someone in their household that died. So it took the Jews had to go, had to hear the word of God and say, okay, we got to do what God said. And if they did, they lived. And Jesus is the Passover lamb for us. His blood is the one that covers our household, not just saving our lives, giving us life, but also being instrumental in setting us free. So this is the meal they're remembering and all of the parts that, that go with it. And so it's time to prepare for it. And so look at verse 13. And he sent out two of his disciples. We know this is Peter and John. And he said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So Jesus tells them, you know, here's the way it's going to go down, guys. You're going to go into the city, and when you see a guy carrying a pitcher of water on his head, well, you would have to know, culturally, that's a unique thing. Men typically didn't carry water in pitchers on their head. That'd be something the women would commonly do. So it'd be like saying, guys, go into the city, and when you see a guy wearing high heels, follow, no, no, don't follow him. Um, but that's the kind, you know, it's not something that's typically a woman thing. When you see a guy, then it's like, ooh, there's the, the, we're supposed to follow that guy. And evidently, Jesus had predetermined this because when they meet the master of the house, all they have to say to him is, teacher. They don't say, you know, uh, they say the teacher says, not the rabbi says or not Jesus says. They just say the teacher says. Sort of secretive, isn't it? Sort of a, a covert mission here. They say, the teacher says, where's the guest room? And then he'll show you the upper room. And it's already furnished and prepared. Everything's already ready. And that's where you're going to make the dinner. Now, the question is, why is this so shrouded in secrecy? I mean, why not just say, well, where are we going to eat the Passover? Well, guys, I'll tell you what. I've secured us a house on Fifth and Market. Uh, Bob owns it. You know, it's the, it's the home of, of Bob. And just you go down there and everything's be ready, be ready for us. Just go there and prepare. Why doesn't he just say it? And the only speculation I can make is because, remember, Judas has already plotted and already in cahoots with the Jewish leaders. He's ready to betray Jesus. And what's he looking for? He's looking for, it says it right there in that previous verse, to conveniently betray him. He's looking for a good time. 
when Jesus will be alone, not teaching with the crowds, not surrounded by the crowds. And so if Judas knows where the house is during this time of preparation, then Judas could make, make his way to, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, tell them where it's going to happen. Then he comes back. He says, hey, guys, it's going to be a fifth and market. Bob's house will be there for dinner tonight. Just meet him there. You can have him. And if Judas betrayed him then, what would never have happened is the Lord's Supper would have never been instituted. So Jesus is in control of all this. He keeps it shrouded in mystery. Why? So Judas doesn't know where they're going. Keeps Judas in darkness. And so verse 16 says, So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said. There's the guy in high heels. No, no, there's the guy with a water pot on his head. And they prepared the Passover. So Judas doesn't know where this is happening Verse 17, in the evening, he came with the 12. And so that's when Judas finally comes, and by then it's too late for him to kind of leave. He's there for the, the Passover. Judas will find a different time to betray Jesus. We'll, we'll read through that later on in, in the weeks coming. But so they're around the, the table together. Again, not the table as we think about it, not the Leonardo da Vinci painting, but they're reclining on low coffee tables leaning on an elbow, eating with a hand. They're taking their time through dinner, through this meal. They're reclining. Um, it, this is the way, by the way, the Passover, it's significant that they ate this way. In that culture, slaves didn't recline at a meal. You, if you were wealthy or you had power or authority, that's when you reclined at a meal together. So Jesus is sort of He's, he's prepared the meal for them, this Passover meal. And by the way, Wednesday night this week, if you haven't put it on your calendar yet, please do. We'll have our Seder dimmer, dinner demonstration here. A man is coming to kind of lead us through the details. So for today, we get a broad overview of these things. But Wednesday night, you'll get a detailed view of kind of all of the different elements, uh, the prayers, the scripture readings, uh, the different things and what they meant. That's this Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. So please come and join us for that. But for now... Jesus is around the table with his 12 disciples. And as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And that drops on them like a bomb. Because this was their group. This was their fraternity. I mean, these, were, these guys had walked together, ministered together for the last three years, intimately, 24-7. They knew the best about each other. They knew the worst about each other. And then Jesus just sits around the table and says, look, one of you guys is going to betray me. And I was thinking about that, you know, if I got together a group of my closest friends, guys that I've been in ministry together for the last, some of them with 15, 16 years, we've been serving the Lord together. And I got, you know, seven or eight, nine guys around a table and we were having a meal together and someone said, one of these guys is going to betray you. Like, what? No way. Well, I can't imagine. I know these guys. These are my buddies. These are my, man, these are my sidekicks, my co-laborers in Christ. There's no way that they would betray me. But Jesus says it. So to them, they, they, it's hard for them to even imagine. What? I mean, when we eat together, to eat a meal together is to become one with the person you're eating with because you broke, you ate with your hands, first of all, and you broke the bread and whatever was in that bread that you ate was in the bread that I ate. So the same bread that nourished you nourished me and we became one in that. And so it, it, meals were an intimate thing. We rush through meals way too fast. My wife gets after me all the time, and she is so right. I eat way too fast. I, I, guess, I get excited, you know, about stuff. And then I just, 
I'm ready to go on to the next thing, and I need to slow down. So I don't know why I'm confessing that to you, but it's, uh, if you invite me out for lunch, just pray. I said, pray, Lord, I pray Steve will slow down when he eats, something like that, and you can hold me accountable. And my wife will thank you for that as well. But he says, one of you is going to betray me, and, and, it, and it hits hard. And so they begin to, uh, to look around the table. And, and by the way, before I, I go on, I want to mention to you that all of this is fulfilling Scripture. Psalm 41, verse 9, speaking of, uh, it's a Psalm of David, but we, they recognize this is Messianic. It's, it's speaking of the Messiah. It says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's Psalm 41, verse 9. It's a prophetic, uh, prophetic psalm pointing us to the fact that the Messiah would be betrayed by someone who ate bread with him. And so we see Judas being that person. One who eats bread with me will betray me. So they begin to be sorrowful, verse 19 says, and they said to him one by one, each of them said, it is, is it I? And another said, is it I? So around the table, each of the guys in turn looked at Jesus and said, is it me? Am I the one? Which is so fascinating because you would figure when Jesus said, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me, they'd all be like, Judas, yeah, we knew it. I mean, it was so obvious. We always knew something about that guy. He's the one. They didn't, Judas was so slick that no one ever suspected him of a thing. And, you know, I'm glad that, that we don't have to be the one that separates the sheep from the goats. That we're not in charge of deciding who's saved and who's not saved. Because outward appearances can be deceiving. I mean, you can have a person who's been walking with the Lord for years, or seeming to be. They've got all the outward things. They carry the right Bible. They wear the right clothes. They say the right things. They, they even are engaged in ministry. Judas was all of that. He was one of the twelve. And yet Satan entered his heart to betray Jesus. And so there might be people that you look at and you go, you know, that guy, he has got it all together. Uh, you know, outwardly looks great. And we would say, certainly that person is, is a God-fearing man. But be careful. You don't know what's on the inside. Because you might also look at someone who's struggling with sin, wrestling with sin, and you might say, you know, that, that person, that, they're not saved. And maybe they are. And they're just wrestling against this oppression in their life or they're wrestling against this habit in their life and they really are saved but they're just struggling with sin and so you don't know which is which judas would have fooled us all he fooled all of them right so what that means is that we don't have to worry about it it's not my job to worry about it i'm glad i gotta worry about my own salvation you gotta worry about your own salvation i want to do everything i want as as peter says i want to make my calling and elect election sure no one should look at my life and say, well, I wonder about that. Now, I've always thought something was funny about Steve. And, and we shouldn't say that about you. You should do everything adding to your faith, Peter said. Adding to your faith so that no one has to wonder. But it's not our job to wonder about each other. It's our job to take care of ourselves. Let God sort these things out. That sets us free to just love each other. Isn't that awesome? Like, I don't have to worry about whether you're saved or not saved. I just get to love you. Now, of course, I want you to be saved. I want you to know the Lord. I want you to go into eternal life. But I can't control that, and I, can't just, I, I don't know what's in your heart, and you don't know what's in mine. So let's not stop, let's stop trying to figure it out, and let's just love each other. Isn't that easy? Again, simple. The gospel is simple. 
So is it I, is it I, is it I? And the other thing I like about this is they didn't say, when he said, someone's going to betray me, they didn't say, well, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. They could have said that too, right? And I think oftentimes it's easy to overestimate your own strength. I think the minute you say, well, that'll never happen to me, I would never do that. Peter says that, I'd never deny you, Lord. And what's he do? He denies it. Be, be warned that you overestimate your own strength. You do. I do. You do. Here's the thing. I can read about an article. You know, it's, it's very troubling when you see pastors fall into adultery or, or stealing or whatever it is that happens. And I remember not too long ago reading an article about a pastor, very well-known pastor, who had, um, it had, it had come out that he had been involved in multiple uh, adulterous relationships and it's just like, oh, he had to step down from his pulpit, just destructive to the church. And you just say, man, how does that happen? And you can easily say, well, that'll never happen to me. But I don't, when I see those kind of things, I go, ha, ah, I know that could be me if I'm not careful. So the minute, you know, the Bible says pride comes before what, folks? Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So the minute you say, well, it'd never be me, that'll never ha- I'd never do that, then be careful because you have now just set yourself up to do the very thing you- because you've let your guard down. When you say it's never going to be me, if I say, well, my marriage, well, my marriage will never have problems. That means I've stopped making sure it doesn't. But if I say, hey, I'm human, my wife is human, I know we're susceptible just like anybody else, that means we have to keep constant vigil over our marriage every day, every week. So we have to have date nights. And so if you call me up and say, Steve, I, I can, the only night I can meet is Monday night. And I say to you, hey, that's date night, man. Get lost. I got, I got a date with my wife that night. You have to know that that's because I understand that I'm vulnerable to temptation just like you are. And my wife and I have to stay, and the, the more the church grows, the more ministry is busy, the more we have to be vigilant over our relationship. Because I don't want to say, well, that'll never happen to me. I look, I'm, I'm like these disciples. I go, ah, that could be me. That could be me. And I don't know if you, you're smart enough to say that in your life, if you look at yourself and say, you know what, that could be me. That guy who used to be sitting in the, in the chair next to you, used to be in that Bible study with you, and now he's walked away from the Lord, you go, ah, I'll never walk away from the Lord. Well, maybe you will. You have to be vigilant so you don't. So they look around the table. Is it I? Is it I? I can't imagine. And Jesus answered them and said, It is the one, it it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The one who's going to dip in in the dish with me. Now listen, this is interesting. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So interestingly, we say, well, was Judas just a pawn? I mean, did he have, maybe God just, you know, uh, used him for that? And it really wouldn't be fair to judge Judas because God used him. Well, we believe that, that what we have operating here is two things. Number one, God's sovereignty. God had already planned out that Jesus would be betrayed. We saw that in Psalm 41, that he'd be betrayed by somebody who ate bread with him. We saw that, that he'd be crucified, that he'd be buried, that he'd rise again. All that written in Scripture before it ever happened. So God's word never fails. The, the flowers fade, the, the grass withers, but the word of God endures forever. So if God said it's going to happen, but we also believe, oh, by the way, you can write down Acts chapter 4, I'll read this to you real quick. 
For truly against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, listen, to do whatever your hand, speaking of God, and your purpose, speaking of God, determined before to be done. Pontius Pilate, Herod, all the people involved, they were only doing what God had purposed would be done. God's sovereignty. But on the other hand, what's it say about Judas? But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So Judas is still responsible. As was Pharaoh in the Old Testament, God didn't overtake his will. Actually, who did? Satan did. He gave his will. The most important thing you have in your life is your will. And your will, as I said before, is never really your will. It's just your will has to be given to a master. No one is their own master. You are always, as Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. And that's the choice you have. We believe in the free will of man to make that choice. Otherwise, the Bible would not be accurate in saying, choose this day whom you will serve. If God is God, serve him. So Judas is responsible, as Jesus says here, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So someone's going to betray him, and the person that does it is a bad thing. And so bad, he says, it'd be better uh, if that man had never been born. Better to have not been born than to have been born and walked away, walked with Christ, served with Christ, seen him face to face. You, You and I have never had that opportunity. Think about what Judas rejected. He was with Jesus. All through all the miracles, walking on water, everything else, he saw all that, and he turned away from it. And he betrayed Jesus. And it would be better to have not been born than to spend eternity than uh, separated from God in that way. So, verse 22, and as they were eating, now Judas has, has left, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he had gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we'll stop there for today, but I don't want you to lose paying attention just yet. Uh, we know they're eating uh, the Passover meal, and the Passover meal was very representative. As I said, each thing meant something. The bitter herbs spoke uh, of the, the bitterness of the bondage. The, the unleavened bread as well was the bread of affliction. They dipped in salt water, which represented the salt of the tears that they cried during that time. All the things had meaning, and as they went through and they carried out the Passover meal, we don't know exactly how it worked out, in Jesus' day, most of the information we have, it comes from after 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple. But uh, it's probably similar to what, what is, is practiced today among the Jews. Uh, they would do some readings. Uh, they would have four cups of wine during the course of the meal. Things would be prayed over. Um, hands would be washed. And all these things were symbolic. And the meaning at each step of the way, your kids would be with you. And the, the whole thing is meant for the kids to go, why is this night different than the other nights? I mean, normally we, we don't recline like this at the table, but tonight we are. Normally we don't eat this hard-boiled egg, or normally we don't eat this. Why, why are we doing this? And so the Passover was national for so the whole nation, but then it was communal. In other words, when you had a lamb, maybe, you're, maybe you only had 
two or three people in your house. Maybe it was just the two of you and, and one child. And, and a lamb was going to be more than you could eat, so you'd invite the neighbors over. And so you'd eat that together. And then it was even more than that. It was very individual. You would say during that meal, this is what the Lord has done for me. So it was national. It was communal. It was also very individual. All three of those levels hit. And so the normal thing would be to be explaining these things. So while they're eating, they get to the part where the bread is broken. You'll see that Wednesday night. Jesus blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, I think we can realize that it wasn't really his body, all right? His body was there. He was sitting at the table. But what he means is this, is, this represents my body. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple? And he said, destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. And he spoke of the temple of himself. So he used similar language, destroy this temple. This is my body. It's representative of of what he's doing for them, what he's going to do for them. And he says, this is, this is my body. And the, the interesting thing about this is, is Jesus planned the meal. Jesus already had it prepared. Now Jesus is overseeing the meal. And actually Jesus is what's being served. He's all, from beginning to end, the Lord's Supper is all about Christ and what he does for us. Look at that at the meal he, this is his last supper. He's not going to have a midnight snack. He's going to go from here. He's going to go to the garden to pray. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be uh, being interrogated all night. They're going to finally unjustly try him in the morning, and then they're going to take him off to be crucified. This is the last time he'll eat, and he's sitting around the table with his disciples, and he's serving them. And Paul uses this as an example in 1 Corinthians about uh, for their church, and it's an example for our church. That when, when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of serving one another. Just as Jesus. So he didn't come to be served, but to serve, right? You know that? You, you, we've read that. And so it's so easy to adopt that mindset of what's the church doing for me? Well, I don't like this. I don't, this doesn't suit me at the church and the church this and the church that. And wait a second, you've missed it. You've, if you're coming here to worship Jesus and follow him, then the way you come in is, hey, what can I do for you? His last meal, and he says, guys, I want to serve you. What if you knew that tomorrow you were going to die? And you had a special dinner tonight. Would you want to be served at that dinner? Would you say, you know, guys, I think you should serve me. I'm, I'm dying tomorrow. I, I need this. I deserve this. Or at that meal, would you say, you know, this is the last thing I get to do on earth. I want to serve you. Good question, isn't it? So he says, this is, take you, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And look, he gave thanks. He gave thanks. You should give thanks. Every time you sit down at dinner, every time you sit down at a meal, you recognize this is a gift from God. We're taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. One, one, you know, one minute, food line shuts the doors and we're out of luck. This is, so he takes and he gives thanks and he gives it to them, and they all drank it, this last of the cups, and he said, this is my blood. Whoa, that's a heavy statement. He didn't say, hey, we do this to remember the lamb. He says, we do this now for something I'm going to do in the future. This is now going to be transferred. It's going to be redefined, no longer about the lamb and Egypt and remembering coming out of that bondage. At that time, I'm updating it. 
I'm bringing it to the present. This is now about me, the sacrifice I'm making for you, the freedom not from Egypt but from sin, the forgiveness of sins. And he says, this is a new deal. It's a new covenant, a new arrangement in my blood because the old one was perfect and good, but it was weak. Why was it weak? Because we couldn't keep it. The old covenant in the law, we would agree with the Ten Commandments, right? We would look at the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, we agree with all those. The problem is, I can't keep any of them. Not, a, not, a, not if you take them down to the level of my thought life or the internal. And so this is not something new that Jesus is determining to do here. This was even foretold in Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah said, the days are coming where, I'm gonna, where, where God says, I'm going to write my law where, folks? On your heart. If laws could change people, then we'd live in a perfect country, wouldn't we? We got plenty of laws. We don't lack for laws. What we lack for is the ability to follow them. And when God puts his spirit in us, he writes his law of love on our hearts. And we live according to the spirit now. And that, the laws can't change people. And so the new covenant, the strength was in that it was based on what God did and not what we do. The old covenant is you do and God blesses. The new covenant is God did and you're blessed. And then you do from that. So that's, the, that's why we needed a new one in the first place. And then he says, I'm not going to drink it anymore until the kingdom of God. So it, it even looks forward to a new time. And just as they ended with a hymn, uh, it's a time of celebration. We're going to end today with a song. Uh, Shane, if you guys would come on up. They'd sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we'll see, we'll pick up with Peter's denial and um, Jesus praying in the garden, all that in the weeks to come. So Easter next week, invite your friends, Romans chapter 1, look ahead if you want, and then we'll pick back up the following week with Mark chapter 14. Amen? Amen. As you stand, uh, and as the band comes up, uh, I had an interesting opportunity on Friday, spoke with a a girl that I met, and uh, you you ever meet someone and you just know the need is so great in their life? And you just know, like, I, there's nothing I can tell you except that I know Jesus can change your life. I mean, just look, hearing her life story of childhood prostitution, having been sold by her mom into prostitution, drug addiction, in and out of rehab, back in and out of the places where she was uh, getting drugs, doing drugs, dealing drugs, and it's the, the, the tattoos that's told the story of her life and the piercings and the glazed over eyes that that weren't too glazed to shed a tear. I'm not making this up. This is a true story. And I just looked at her and I was like, I, I have nothing, I have nothing for you other than to say, if you draw close to God, he will draw close to you. I know, I know no one else that has the words of eternal life. I know nowhere else to send you. Your psychologist or psychiatrist cannot offer you a new start, a new life. Your medical doctor can't offer you a new life. I, I don't know where to send people. You know, it's so frustrating. Uh, but I'm so, so thankful that I do know, and based on the witness and the testimony of so many people in here, that we believe in a God who's alive and does forgive sins and does give new life. And so if that's something that you need, that you want, it is free for the asking. You just have to reach out and get it. I'll be up here after the service. Please feel free to come up and say, what you're talking about, that's what I need. And, and I'll tell you how, how that happens. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.